Please turn with me in Scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the day in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds." I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you
according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and who do not have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This morning we come to the fourth of the churches, the church in Thyatira. Now, we don't know all that much from Thyatira in Scripture. We do have a couple of mentions. We have this incident in Acts chapter 16. It says in verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Now, all that happened in Philippi, where it appears that she had moved and and where uh, her household was. But it is at least possible that by this connection, through this connection, that the, how, the, uh, the church in Thyatira was eventually started. We don't know. Other than that, we don't have any mention in the Bible. From extra-biblical sources, we find that this is probably the least important of those seven cities. But one thing it did seem to have in abundance, and that was trade guilds. Now, as we learned last week from Pergamos, Ancient trade guilds meant idolatrous and licentious festivals given over to various pagan deities and also to sexual immorality. There was an abundance of these trade guilds and no doubt an abundance of pressure to participate. And so therefore we have an abundance of temptation for the church to give in. And in particular to give in to construct some sort of theological justification for participating in them. Because on the whole, God's people simply don't give themselves over to things. There needs to be some veneer of respectability, some veneer of good reason for doing it. And that would seem to be what exactly happened. Now, Christ's initial description of the church, we must recognize, sounds quite good. So we read in verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, on the surface, they would appear to have it all. Because unlike the Ephesian church, they have love. And they also have the service to go along with it. These people know about Philippians chapter 2, about the service that comes with love. And they also have faith and patience, things that are consistently identified in the Bible as essential to the faith. And on top of that, they're not on some downward trajectory on these things. Your works, the last, are more than the first. They're on an upward trajectory. And lots and lots of churches would love to have that said about them. One almost gets the impression that if they had sort of conferences back then for trend-setting churches, churches where a lot of wonderful things were going on, that the leaders of this church would be invited There's a lot going on. However, unlike the church in Ephesus, 
And much like the church in Pergamos, they also tolerated false teaching. And just like the church in Pergamos, that false teaching had something to do with the Christian's relationship to idolatrous practices. Now, incidentally, as we're comparing these two churches, you might ask what might be different about them at all. Well, on this point, I think the difference has to do with how far they had gone into it. Because notice that with, the, with regard to uh, the previous church in Pergamos, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, they're there, but, and they're obviously being tolerated. That's a problem. But he doesn't specifically uh, come down with regard to bringing attention to that toleration as he does in Thyatira. You allow that woman Jezebel. So that's one difference. The other difference is that this seems to be the first warning to the church in Pergamos. You need to repent or else I'm going to fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Whereas here, apparently, this woman Jezebel had already been given room to repent. She had already been warned of these things. So they were a little bit deeper into these things at this church in Thyatira. Well, that's the church, but let's think about Christ. Christ's description of himself in verse 18, and the angel of the church in Thyatira write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Now again, that's pointing to Christ's perfect holiness and perfect purity in the entirety of his being, and in particular his discernment, his eyes like a flame of fire, able then to detect the slightest sin, the slightest error. He sees what his church is up to. He sees the falsehood of what is being taught there and that the rest of them are tolerating it. And there's a difference, you see, between the, the elder or elders of that church in Thyatira and Christ. They may be tolerating this false teaching in their midst, but Christ will not. Christ is not going to be joining them in that sin of tolerating this heresy He's going to do something about it. He's about to take action, drastic action. And so the church must listen carefully to this matter of life and death as he threatens that he's going to take away the children of this doctrine, those who listen to it. He's going to kill them with death. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches title of this sermon is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire to the corrupt church. And we have three points. One, that woman Jezebel. Two, you allow her to teach. Three, judgment is coming. First, that woman Jezebel. Now, very much like Balaam, the Lord is using obvious typologies, not actually Jezebel, but as with the case of Balaam, he's using in a single word to describe something that would otherwise take a lot of time to describe. There's a character in the Old Testament, a real historical character that has the traits, the, the relevant traits of some false teacher. Last time it was Balaam, and now it's Jezebel. And we need to know the, under, the Old Testament in order to understand that. And I think it would behoove us then to go back and take a look at Jezebel. And this, most of this is in, well, it's all in 1 Kings 16 and or 18 and possibly in 21 if we get there. But so in the latter part of 1 Kings, 
Now, Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. And at the beginning of his reign, we have this summary in 1 Kings 16.30. Now, Ahab, was this, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the father of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And then at the end, so that was the beginning, bad enough. At the end of his reign, we have the statement in 1 Kings 21:25. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Interesting role. How so? Well, A, she supported the prophets of Baal and Asherah. It says in 1 Kings 18:19, Now therefore, send and gather all men to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And all that means, it doesn't mean that she had a really, really big table and they all ate there. It just means that she supported them financially. Their salary, they were, they were supported <laughs> through Jezebel. And that reminds us, incidentally, that when we share, when we support someone, say a missionary, financially, we share for good or for ill. We share if there, there's fruit that accrues to the glory of God, it comes to us as well, and we also share in their evil deeds when we support someone financially. So it's a good thing to keep in mind. Well, so A, she supported these prophets, these false prophets of Baal and Asherah, but B, she killed the prophets of the Lord. For so it was that while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 150 prophets and hidden them. You remember that story. Well, she had been, not only had she been uh, supporting false prophets, she had been killing, which is far worse, the prophets of the Lord. In fact, she even tried to take away the life of Elijah. And this was after the Mount Carmel incident. So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. See, she conspired to kill that righteous man Naboth. And no doubt this was probably emblematic of lots of things that she did. So in all these things, then the Lord eventually judged her severely. The Lord eventually brought about that judgment that was all too ripe. And it says this in 1 Kings 21:23, And concerning Jezebel the Lord... Also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Now, that's very graphic language. And in fact, if you read the description that actually happened in 2 Kings chapter 9, it's even far more graphic. But the point is, she wasn't going to have just a normal death and a, an honorable burial because this woman was too bad for all those things. So, in other words, as we try to, 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 uh, to describe what was going on here, Jezebel describes a wicked, idolatrous woman who brazenly encourages people in sin and falsehood. And simply by calling this woman, this false teacher, the name Jezebel, we learn much more than could be said in several paragraphs. Notice, by the way, that uh, I've mentioned that ancient uh, proverb that the beginning of wisdom is to call things by the right name. And no doubt that this woman, this teacher, had a good name among the people. 
But when Jesus Christ cuts through all that and calls her a Jezebel, she's, he's calling things by their right names. And all of a sudden, the approach to her doesn't sound so plausible, does it? It sounds like something that we ought to be suspicious of, and I think that's right. So first, that's the woman Jezebel. That's her nature. That's what she's like. She's a wicked woman who leads people astray. And secondly, you tolerate her to teach. That's what it says back in Revelation 2.20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Lots of compounding problems, aren't there here? Well, first of all, it's because you allow. The heresy is not something that everyone in this church has been infected with. They're not all holding it. It's just like the other situation we looked at. That's not the problem. It's not something that the, the elders themselves or the angel, as perhaps the minister is being referred to, that's not a problem of the leadership of this church. The thing that the Lord has against them is simply that they're tolerating someone who is teaching without the authority to do so. They should have done what the Ephesian church did. You remember what they did. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles or not and have found them liars. They should have done that. And also, this woman calls herself a prophetess. You know, sometimes people justify their false teaching with the claim, the Lord revealed this to me. The Lord specially gave this to me. I, I know that's not according to Scripture, but what I have, especially from the Lord, trumps all of those things. And at that time, before the canon of Scripture was complete, and it was, by the way, by the time John laid down his pen, this canon of Scripture was complete. At the end. But at that time, when he was describing these events, they did still have prophets there. But thankfully, we have the Word of God, complete Word of God, and anyone that claims that the Lord has revealed something new and different to what Scripture teaches is false. Well, you allow this woman who calls herself a prophetess to teach. Now, Christ, you see, is the one who teaches his church. He does. He leads his church and he teaches his church through his word and his spirit. But he also does use human agents. And he hasn't left us without the means of telling whether someone is teaching on right authority or not. Just as in the Old Testament, he always gives us marks by which a prophet may be known. So it is in the New Testament. He lets us know the marks of a true teacher. Now, in three out of three counts, this woman Jezebel, she doesn't have those marks of right authority. If we take description as face value that she was a woman, I suppose it's open to some possible question that maybe she, that Christ is using this picture of Jezebel, but she's not actually a woman. But if we take it at face value that she was, well, then she shouldn't have been teaching. First Timothy 2.12 says it so clearly, And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man but to be in silence. It couldn't be any more clear than that. And as Ligon Duncan likes to say, if you can get that verse to mean that I do permit a woman to teach or have authority over men, then you can get the Bible to mean absolutely anything. It's very clear. She was from the, from the outset forbidden to teach in that church. Furthermore, she was not set aside because it's not every man who can teach. It's not the only qualification but only those who meet certain qualifications that are established by God, for instance, in First Timothy, 
and then who are set aside by the church publicly to do that office. And this she obviously lacked. And third, she was teaching things in conflict with the truth because sometimes there are men who do meet otherwise the qualifications of elders and in fact have been set aside as teachers by the church, but they lack that third criteria. They lack that third criterion, which is that the things they teach ought to be in accordance with apostolic truth, the things that are in Scripture. Well, she obviously wasn't doing that, as we're, we're about to see. So they're allowing this woman, Jezebel, to teach when she had no authority to do things as this, and then to lead my servants astray. As she's not just teaching them to no effect, she is teaching them in order to lead them astray, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, there is an intimate relationship between these two things, both typologically and really. It's typological because very often in Scripture, the idea of going out to an idol is compared to sexual immorality. And sometimes it's just called that, as if it were. And secondly, it has a connection realistically, in the sense that very much, very many times these pagan festivals have sexual immorality as part of them. In fact, it's very clearly intimated that when the, uh, the, uh, the Israelites themselves gave over to idolatry in the case of the golden calf, that they, uh, th- that they were involved as well in sexual immorality as part of their festival. Well, that was certainly the case with these pagan cults and these pagan uh, trade guild festivals in which idolatry was very much mixed with sexual immorality. Well, of course, the people of God from the very beginning were warned against these things in Exodus 34:15, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. You see, oh, and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice. That's way back in Exodus. This isn't something new that the church had just begun to have to deal with. Something that's been going on for some time. So notice both of those things. The element of eating of that sacrifice and therefore participating in that idolatry and also of the language of sexual immorality that you're going to be playing the harlot spiritually if you do this. And likewise in Leviticus 17.7, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. And here then we have the further element that the problem with this idolatry is that these things really are given over to demons. Now people may not know that or not. But as we'll see, the Lord understands very often that these idolatrous things really are given over to real demons. And therefore, it should never be tolerated, as it goes on in Leviticus chapter 20 to say, and the people of the land should, in, uh, should not in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Moloch, and they do not kill him. Then I will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut him off from this people, all those who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Moloch. So the people should not hide their eyes. You see this elements then. All the elements that we fi- find here in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, right from the very beginning, God's people are warned against this possibility of entering in and playing the harlot with uh, these, these pagan worship things around them by eating of their sacrifice, participating in that harlot- harlotry, and mainly it should not be tolerated. 
Yet, of course, we know that they wouldn't listen. We know that they continued on in their pagan idolatry until the Lord cleansed the land by expelling them from it. Well, I I mentioned that there is a connection uh, between this idolatry and uh, with actual fornication. We see that connection in Hosea chapter 4. It says in Hosea 4.12, They have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops. They burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebinths because your shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. Um, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go apart to harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. So what was the situation here? It well could have been both. Probably something along the lines of there being some sort of pagan banquet with the meat and the drink given over to some uh, patron deity of that particular trade guild and then as the party progressed going on into sexual licentiousness. So that was the situation there. And so she was telling her people that it was okay to participate, to eat these things, sacrifice to idols, and therefore to participate in this idolatry. Now the funny thing is, you probably remember the Jerusalem Council. Now the Jerusalem Council had to settle the matter of whether the Gentiles needed to follow the ceremonial law or not. You can imagine that it's an important thing to get straight. People are coming to faith. These people are Gentiles. They're not Jews, like so many, like the apostles, for instance. What are we supposed to do with them? Are they supposed to keep the ceremonial law or not? And, of course, some said that they had to. But Paul had it right, and he said, no, they don't. We're saved by grace through faith alone. Well, then the injunction of the Jerusalem Council was not only to say you don't have to keep the ceremony law, but it did add a few things, for some guidelines of specific things that the people shouldn't do. And it says in Acts 15.29, you should abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, that's not a long list. Not a long list at all. But it was these precise things that Jezebel was saying were okay for the Christians in Thyatira to do. Now that injunction is reiterated in Acts 21:25, not just once in 15, but also in 21. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except, that doesn't, it means they don't have to keep the whole ceremonial law, all of the, the food laws and all the purity laws and all the clothing laws and all the rest of it except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. Well, this is a big deal for the early church. I know we've mentioned it, I think, in the Bible study uh, as we're going through 1 Corinthians, uh, because a lot of the meat back then was sacrificed to idols. And the question is, what are you supposed to do with it? Now, when we consider the relative toleration in 1 Corinthians compared with the absolute prohibition in Revelation chapter 2, the thing that we have to keep straight is that in Revelation chapter 2, 
what they're talking about is actually going to these festivals and eating in this way. Whereas in Corinthians, we're talking about meat that is sold in the meat market. And the difference is, to what level then are you participating knowingly into some pagan sacrifice? And I, I can't read all of First Corinthians 8. There's way too much to cover in depth. But just moving on to chapter 10, here's what it says. First Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the principle. The big principle is flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves for what, what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion with the body of Christ? You see how he's building this argument. When we take the Lord's Supper, not everyone takes it. Why? Because not everyone is, is connected with Christ. When you take that cup, you are in communion with Christ. No. What about a pagan festival? Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or that which is offered to idols or anything? Rather, the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the Lord's table and the table of demons. So, what he's saying then, if something has been specifically and publicly set aside as to be sacrificed to demons, if you partake of it then, you are, you are joining yourselves to demons, and therefore you shouldn't do it. Now, if there just happens to be meat that's without identification, that's just there, or some, you go to someone's house and they haven't said a word, you don't have to investigate the matter. You don't have to scrutinize them and say, are you sure you bought this from, it's got nothing. No, it's not like that. He says, if anyone who does not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go eat whatever is set before you, ask you no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. Well, again, this is a, a topic perhaps for another day, but it's impossible. We could not possibly understand the injunctions, could not understand what's so bad about the heresy here in Thyatira if we didn't understand something of the nature of this problem. The problem is you eat, you participate you actually have communion, not with God, but with demons. And God's people should not do this. Well, they tolerated that woman, Jezebel, to teach and to lead these the people astray. Thirdly, judgment is coming. It says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual morality, and she did not repent. She was given time. She was given the opportunity to repent. And that's what makes it heresy rather than just error. I think I would call the previous situation in Pergamos that of error that needs urgently to be corrected. But it's not really heresy until a competent authority has identified it and has given someone the opportunity to repent of it. Because I'm sure there are lots of people who fall by mistake into various errors and they, just, and they don't know. They need to be taught. They need to be pointed out. The implications of what they're saying, they need to be pointed out to them. 
They need to be corrected by a competent authority and then given the opportunity to repent. But when they don't, and when they carry on knowingly in something that is false teaching, then we have a word for it, and the word is heresy. Because they have chosen for themselves to go on a path that is wrong. We have then B, the impending threat. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. Now, if never before, we know why it's such a big deal for the church to maintain orthodoxy, for the church to maintain discipline over its people, and to make sure that no false thing is being taught among them. Because the end of these things is death. That's why it's such a big deal. Now, we cannot be entirely sure whether it's physical or spiritual or both. One thing we know that in 1 Corinthians 11, as they are going astray with regard to their their understanding of the Lord's Supper, it says this, He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. And we all know that when he says sleep, he's not talking about the sleep we have every night. He's talking about death. Some of them have died because of their disobedience in this matter. Now, of course, of the two things, that's the easier. That's, uh, you'd prefer that. We, in this, in this world that we live in, this culture, we have these things backwards. We think that the worst possible thing that could happen to us is physical death. No, it's not. No, it's not. If, in fact, and sleep often indicates what happens to believers, right? These people were prevented from further sin and further apostasy by the Lord taking them home. Well, then that's a much better fate, isn't it, then, for them to have carried on than that and then ended up in spiritual death. Well, again, I'm not entirely sure whether you're talking about one or the other or both. They're connected. They're intimately connected. Physical death is connected with spiritual death. But the point is they were being threatened with death. This is a matter of life and death. It's a reminder of what Proverbs 8.35 says with regard to wisdom, godly wisdom. Whoever finds me, godly wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. You turn away from the right teaching of God's word, you're turning towards death. It is plain and simple. You stay on that path, and you are on the path that leads to death. So he is threatening, you see, with his coming judgment. And that's severe enough. And that's a big enough reason, then, for us to listen. That is a, a, a sufficient reason for the church to care about maintaining the purity of its teaching. More than enough. But before we leave this point... Consider the purpose that he gives. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. You see, it takes away, it derogates from the glory of Christ when his church acts as if he is blind. Acts as if he can't see what they're doing. Acts as if he can't tell the difference between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood. Treats all the people in his church, even the ones who are obediently following his truth and preaching it and believing it, and those 
who presumptuously teach heresy, treating them the same, as if he can't see and as if he can't do anything about it, that takes away from his glory. And he wants to make sure that we will not make that mistake, that everyone knows that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I give to each one of you according to your works. See, he is the one who has the eyes like the flame of fire. That's getting back to the main point of the sermon, actually. Because the main point is always Christ. And the thing that Christ is showing to us is that he has the eyes like the flame of fire. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. And what that means is not merely that he doesn't look, he doesn't notice it. Of course, he sees all evil. That's not the point at all. The point is that he doesn't see it and then do nothing about it. He sees everything. And he's going to do something about it. That's the way it's explained in Habakkuk. We've made reference to this several times before. But listen, by the way, to the context here. In Habakkuk 1.11, he commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. That's the sin in question. That's idolatry. You see, the whole, the context of this quotation is someone falling into idolatry. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. And he's saying, far be it from you, Lord. To just behold this evil and do nothing about it. You're going to bring this idolater into judgment. And so it's true that all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds. That we might know that he is the one with the eyes of a flame of fire. I have several applications for these things. The first is just to summarize the remainder of the chapter in verses 24 to 27, which is to hold fast. Not everyone there had fallen into these things. And for those who hadn't, the command, the application, was simply to hold fast. Sometimes we, there's much pressure to, to do more, to get to some place, I mentioned that this church would seem to have something a little bit in common with some trendy churches of our time. There was a lot going on. In fact, their works were more and more. But the Lord actually isn't calling them to move on to something greater, newer, and better. The Lord is calling them to hold fast to that which they have. Hold fast. And to he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them as with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. So the church ought to hold fast. And then we have a couple of things that we ought to avoid. We should avoid knowing the depths of Satan for Christ. I say this tongue-in-cheek, but the idea of knowing the depths of Satan for Jesus, again, is something that I think is at least a plausible explanation for what the actual teaching of Jezebel might have had to do with. You see, there are obvious advantages to the arrangement of saying you can go participate in these pagan festivals because they, got to, they, they were able to indulge the flesh. They could still claim to be Christians. And, of course, they would have the uh, economic advantages of still being part of these guilds and all that. 
But in order for Christians to go along, it had to be predicated on some perceived spiritual benefit, some pious-sounding rationale. It couldn't just be blatantly, I've come up with a new doctrine that's just going to allow us to sin and to indulge our worldly tastes as much as we want. There has to be some plausible uh, veneer of respectability there. And perhaps that phrase, knowing the depths of Satan, was something that they themselves came up with. Because, you know, Christ says, as they say. Maybe they've interpreted it as some sort of good thing. We, the really extra spiritual, can prove our spirituality and maturity because we can handle it. Maybe you weak Christians couldn't be in that situation, but we super spiritual ones can, and we can know the depths of Satan. Or maybe it's the idea that we as Christians need to know what Satan is up to. Or maybe, maybe the idea is it's no good having a religion of grace when you've only experienced forgiveness for a few little minor things. We need to experience the depths of Satan in order to experience the depths of the love of Christ. Who knows exactly what it was, but you can be sure that it was such a rationale. And every once in a while, I wonder if the church today has just such a rationale as well. Something along the lines that we ought to know the depths of Satan for Christ. The idea that we can't possibly do anything about this culture, we can't transform it, we can't help it, we can't even do evangelism unless we know the culture thoroughly. So we ought to go see all the immoral movies and listen to the immoral music and read the immoral books and go to the immoral festivals and all the rest of it. Why? Because we need to know what's going on in the culture if we're ever going to have anything to say to it. No, you don't. No, you don't. You need to know what's in this book in order to have something to say to this culture. You don't need to experience the depths of Satan. We should avoid that idea. Another idea, and this is something that I'm much less 100% sure about, and I want to make that distinction something that has only recently been the examination of ministers and theologians, for instance, in this country. So we're at the beginning of this rather than of something for absolute sure. But I want to raise a question with regard to halal meat. The Sharia law with regard to halal meat has three components. First, that the in order for it to be halal, it has to be adhered to regulations as to how it's slaughtered. And that's probably a thing indifferent. Second, the person slaughtering must be a person of the book, a Jew, Christian, or Muslim. Again, that's a thing indifferent. But finally, the third component is that the name of Allah must be pronounced over the animal at the time of slaughtering. So if the things, if it's halal meat, it has had the name of Allah pronounced over it at the time of its slaughtering. It has been dedicated to Allah. Now, the question is, what does that name entail? As far as I can see, the name of Allah is the name of a God having no eternal son, no eternal spirit, unity, and, and no trinity. And he's approached through law and through capricious mercy, and definitely not through grace alone, by faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Now, it would seem, then, that he would be a false god, that this name Allah designates an idol. In other words, that this meat has been dedicated to an idol. Now, if that's the case, 
then it would seem that Christians should treat halal meat according to the principles established for meat sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians. Now again, the fuller explanation of those principles would take a long time. But again, the idea, if there's no further information, is that somebody's house, etc., you don't have to ask any questions. But if it's pointed out to you in some way, this is halal meat. In other words, that it's been dedicated to law. In other words, to a false god. Then I would certainly question whether we should eat that meat. Fourthly, and I know that this is wide, there's a lot of material in this sermon, I recognize that. This is the longest of these letters. The fourth application is that we need both, not one or the other. And what I'm talking about is that you, the idea you cannot fix the problem of Ephesus with the problem of Thyatira. Do you know what I'm talking about there? Sometimes it's objected that we shouldn't be too doctrinally precise. We shouldn't care too much about orthodoxy because that's what those loveless churches do. That's the Ephesian problem. They don't, they don't, they've got, they test those who are teaching false and they, they get rid of them. Well, good for them, but on the other hand, they're loveless. Well, we, and instead of being like that, we need to forget about being doctrinally pure. And we're going to solve that problem with instead taking on the problem of the church of Thyatira. Of being a compromised, corrupt, heretical church. Well, you cannot solve one of these problems with reference to the other. If the problem is being loveless, then the church needs to repent and start loving, not do some other error. You can't solve the problem of Ephesus with the problem of Thyatira. James Ramsey puts it like this. Have not intense activity, earnest zeal, and works of charity in ministering to the wants and woes of suffering man and faith and patience and enduring all the toils and self-denials which this is demanded been found often in church side by side with great charity to soul-destroying error and its teachers? He's speaking in the time of sort of the rise of the social gospel. Let the churches remember that there is no such system of compensation in the spiritual kingdom as will allow zeal in one thing to make up for neglect of another. Works of charity cannot compensate for indifference to truth. We need both of those things. We need orthodoxy and we need love and we need all the rest of it. Everything that Christ has ever told his church to do, we cannot choose among them. We need to do it all. And we certainly can't fix one problem by introducing a new one. Fifthly, and finally, and most importantly, the question do you have the morning star? Because that's the way it ends. Praise God, and I will give him the morning star. He's going to give them some other things, but the most important is he's going to give them the morning star. Now then, as we've said before, we don't have to wonder what this star might mean. We have in Second Peter 1.17, For he received from God the, the Father honor and glory, in which a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him in the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And not only here, then we have in the concluding chapter, the concluding verses of Revelation in 22, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright 
and morning star. And then concludes with this wonderful invitation to the gospel. Lest we ever imagine that everyone who tends, even though we don't particularly have any any guests this morning, let us not imagine that everyone who comes has in fact put their faith in Christ. Let us always then have the invitation before us. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Let him put his faith in Christ. Let him receive of this great gift that the bright and morning star rises in him that gives light and life. Well, let us pray. Lord God in heaven, your word is so very rich and it is so impossible for we of feeble capacity to teach it adequately and perhaps even to understand what is taught adequately. But Lord God, how we pray that the morning star would rise in our heart and would enlighten everything, would grant us understanding, would grant us the light that we would not fool ourselves into walking in darkness under the cloak of good things, under the cloak of a veneer of rationality and of, of something that is permissible. And that, Lord, you would give us this bright light that we could discern the truth, that we as a church would test those who teach error and to take appropriate action. That, Lord God, that we ourselves would walk day by day in the light and not in darkness. And most of all, Lord, that we would have that everlasting light that comes from Christ Jesus. As we're reminded, Lord, that in heaven we'll need no sun because we'll have Christ himself, the great bright morning star, before us always. Lord God, then help us to learn from these mistakes of this church in Thyatira. Help us, Lord, not to correct it by having the problems of Ephesus, nor to correct Ephesus by having the problems of Thyatira. Help us, Lord, to walk on the straight and narrow, observing all the things that you have taught us. We know that, Lord, you are with us in all these things. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice. We ask it in Jesus' name.